next Gremden podcast. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska and I am the Gremden editor. Our guest today is Professor Robert Zarecki from the University of Houston, who works in the field of modern European intellectual and cultural history. He's also a contributor to numerous cultural and literary outlets. And last year, he has published a biography of Simon Weil, the French intellectual. Welcome, Professor Zarecki. Hi, Kasia. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for accepting this invitation. So let us go straight to your recent book. When I thought about Simone Weil, as you presented her in your book, it struck me how timely are her ideas, actually. So she wrote extensively about the need for roots, uh, gave advice on how to pay attention to the suffering of other human beings, and depicted moral urge to engage in the world's most burning problems. And her writing inspired numerous intellectuals around the world, including the Nobel Prize winner, Polish poet, Czesław Miłosz, but also Albert Camus, or even Hannah Arendt. So I wanted to ask you in the beginning, what personally inspired you to write a biography of Simone Weil? It was happenstance. I, several years ago, I was teaching a class that included the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, and a colleague, a classicist, suggested that I read an essay by Simone Weil on the Iliad, perhaps her most famous essay, The Iliad or the Poem of Force. I read it and I was blown away by it. I never, ever thought of looking at the poem from the perspective that Simone Weil did. My acquaintance with Weil more or less remained with that one essay for a few years. And then I began to write on Albert Camus. Um, I ended up writing a series of articles as well as two books on Camus. As I read and, and wrote on Camus, I understood that Simone Weil, or I began to understand with ever greater depth, just how deeply Simone Weil's work had left a mark on Camus, the post-war Albert Camus. And so I thought that if I were to understand Camus better, I would need to understand Simone Weil better. And I began reading her. The more I read Camus, the more amazed I was, the more, in many ways, confused I was. Um, she's an extraordinarily clear writer on the one hand. On the other hand, as you know, Kasha, she's an extremely demanding writer. I thought that writing a book on Vey might help me clarify my own thoughts about her work and about her life, the two of which are just so deeply intertwined, one with the other. Yeah, I think that uh, her power comes from the contemporaneity of her ideas and solutions, because uh, she responded to modern era problems. But yet her approach seems to be, for many, too hard to put into practice. In many places, I saw how often Susan Sontag was quoted, who remarked that, quoting her words, I cannot believe that more than a handful of the tens of thousands of readers she won since the posthumous publication of her books and essays share her ideas. You also admit uh, that it is hard to put into practice her moral advices. So why do you think it is so difficult to identify with her ideas? Do you agree, as Toril Moy put it in LRB review, that following her path would destroy our families, our careers, our well-beings? It was in that same review, if I recall correctly, that Toril Moy um, also 
suggested that I ended up because I was I myself was perplexed by this question that I ended up writing a Simone Weil for the suburbs. Um, I don't think I did that. I can understand why certain readers might come to that conclusion, though. They represents an ideal that I think very few of us can ever achieve. Perhaps more important, Kasha, I think Simone Weil embodies an ideal that very few of us would want to achieve. There's something on the one hand admirable about the lives of saints. And as you know, Simone Weil is often referred to as a secular saint, something that I don't quite buy. But while there's something admirable about their lives, there's also something, the word repellent is too strong, but I can't help but think of a passage in a review that George Orwell wrote on Mahatma Gandhi and his experiments with the truth, his autobiography. And uh, there's a moment in the autobiography where Gandhi reveals that when one of his children fell ill, that he was told by the doctors that he needed to eat some chicken broth. Gandhi refused. He didn't want his son to eat the chicken broth for philosophical and religious reasons. Happily, his order was ignored by the family and the son survived after having eaten the broth. And Orwell is stunned by this admission made by Gandhi. And on the one hand, he just deeply admires the embrace of this conviction on the part of Gandhi. And on the other hand, he is deeply repelled by Gandhi's refusal to surrender that conviction. Instead, <laughs> do his best to save his son's life, which is a reminder that for the vast majority of of us, life is on this side of sainthood, not on the far side of sainthood. Now, having said that, the point that I try to make in my book is that Simone Weil nevertheless represents a standard. In fact, this is the word used by Iris Murdoch, the English novelist and philosopher, um, in her own writings on Murdoch, on, on Simone Weil, namely that she embodies a standard that we really can't realize. We should think twice about trying to realize, but that nevertheless reminds us of certain ideals that we should never, ever lose from sight. I wanted to follow up on your remark that uh, you don't agree that Simone Weil is a secular saint. So could you elaborate on this, this disagreement? Yeah, of course. In part, I, I don't think of her as a secular saint, if only because I believe that Weil herself would be bothered by such a comparison. She never, ever saw herself in these terms either. At the same time, I think that there are elements to her character and to her life that once again remind us that sainthood is something that once again serves as a standard, but something that we would be well advised not to seek on our own. She was an extraordinarily flawed human being. And I mentioned this more than once in my book, and I've been taken to task by some readers for, for this attitude, but I can't help but feel otherwise about, about Faye, namely that she is very difficult to live with. I've written a number of lives, and the reason I've chosen the lives 
that I decide to write on is because I admire them. And I certainly admire Simone Weil. But the other element, Kasha, is that I also really enjoy spending time in their company, be it David Hume or James Boswell or Catherine the Great or Denis Diderot, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. These are men and women who I would dearly love to meet and to <laughs> and spend time with over a beer, over a coffee. The one subject I've written on that I don't feel quite this way as Simone Weil, I would find that I would simply come up short in her eyes, that she would have neither the patience nor the interest <laughs> in really pursuing a conversation with me or spending time in my company. Whenever I read Weil, this is simply an observation. I always feel, in a way, ashamed that meeting her expectations. And I have never, ever felt that way with another writer, with another thinker. Paradoxically, it's one of the things that keeps drawing me back to Simone Weil. She makes me feel uneasy. And I think Tony Judd, the great historian of, of ideas, once wrote that there's a difference between a moralist and a moralizer. A moralizer is somebody who wags your finger, his finger at you and tells you what to do what not to do. A moralist, on the other hand, at least this is Judd's take, is somebody who wags her finger at herself. In other words, that a true moralist, he was writing this about Albert Camus, but it applies with equal force to Simone Weil, that a true moralist is somebody who makes not just others uncomfortable, but makes themselves uncomfortable. I think this was true for Albert Camus from time to time. I think Judd's right. But I think this is so much truer for Simone Weil. She was always uncomfortable with herself. And as a consequence, that discomfort is manifest, it's contagious. I can't help but feel it in her company too. Yeah, obviously, I also have the same attitude when I read some of her text articles. It always feels uneasy somehow how to reach these standards. But I wanted to ask you the next question to that. So how much do you think she cared about the opinion of the others? How, how important for her was to be seen by her friends and relatives as a person who is brave, so that uh, she demanded from them that they acknowledge her bravery by joining the Spanish Civil War, for example. Or to put it in a different context or more contemporary context, do you think that they would write about her suffering in the factory or the experience with this war on Facebook? <laughs> no, I think she um, would curse Facebook. They had a very poor opinion of popular culture, popular media, even in her own time. Somewhere she described Marie Claire, which was a woman's magazine in the 1930s is now. She described it as cocaine, that it was something that was addictive and that was in a way toxic for agency and for thought. And I can't help but believe that she would feel anything but the same way about social platforms today. You know, you've asked a question that I've never really thought about, and it's fascinating. Namely, did she ever wonder what her 
friends and her family thought about her, given her own attitude towards herself, which was extraordinarily harsh, extraordinarily critical. I don't believe she worried a great deal about what others thought. I think she was so busy wondering about what at least in the final years of her life, what her God thought or what she herself thought about herself. Was she succeeding in doing what she set out to do, uh, regardless of that particular activity or mission? My guess, Kasha, is that she didn't spend a great deal of time worried what others thought. She was elsewhere. Uh, her thoughts were elsewhere. They were not thoughts at all conducive for Facebook or for Twitter. Absolutely, I guess so. What caught my attention in your book was uh, a reference that was made several times by you to the parachuted frontline nurses. So the idea that they presented during the Second World War to shock the goal. It was her response to the unbearable war conditions or, as you write, a gesture towards beauty and goodness. Though this idea might not have been put into practice that day, today we witness the resistance of Ukrainian civilians during the Russian unprovoked invasion. Unarmed, they encircle Russian troops with heavy armory and demand they come back home. Or another instance of a similar attitude Belarusian women who dressed in white and red protested on the streets, risking detention or actually being detained. Do you also see this resemblance? That's a terrific question. When Simone Weil first proposed the nurses plan, and the plan very briefly was that that the free French would parachute women over an active battlefield, and that these women would be garbed in white, dressed as nurses and that they would be dropped over battlefields in order to bring first aid to the wounded soldiers below. They wouldn't be armed, and they would have a rudimentary training as nurses, but nothing more developed than that. As you know, and this is one of the most famous stories in relation to Vey and, and her relationship with the Free French and Charles de Gaulle, namely that this was a proposal that she wrote when she was working for the Free French in late 42, early 43 in London, And the story is, is that when de Gaulle read the proposal, he looked at one of his subordinates and, and said, May elle fall. She's, she's crazy. What I try to explain in the book is that she may be crazy, but she's crazy like a fox, as we say. And she explains this. And I don't think de Gaulle was either ready or willing to understand what her point was, is that looking at, for example, the dedication, uh, the devotion, young SS members or, or even Wehrmacht soldiers who were willing to fight to the death because they were um, taken by the ideal that had been knocked into their skulls, the Nazi state, ever since 1933. They wonders, what can we put up against this? We have the material, we have the money, we have all of the forces necessary to defeat Nazi Germany. But something that money and material can't furnish or buy is an ideal, something that 
one is willing to sacrifice one's life for. She said, this is precisely what the nurse's plan provides that you would be parachuting over these battlefields, women willing to die on behalf of this ideal, an ideal based on compassion, an ideal based on attending to the others, an ideal for which we will die. And when she said we, she meant herself. She wanted to be in the very first group of women parachuting over a battlefield. That ideal, once again, and this is something that I at least come up against time and again in her writings, that on the one hand, they are so, so terribly impractical. How can you even suggest that this is something we implement? But yet at the same time, it makes the greatest sense in the world. You understand from her argument just how terribly important these ideals are. Now, the instances that you mentioned just before about unarmed civilians encircling a tank, you know, it's just extraordinary. And they were risking their lives. That, of course, was a spontaneous action, whereas Simone Weil's nurse's plan is a scripted uh, response to the crisis at hand. But I do think that both what is now taking place here and there in Ukraine and what Simone Weil was proposing is one and the same. Were she alive today and she had seen or read about this instance of civilians risking their lives in order to insist upon their shared humanity with the men in that tank, I think she would have understood that. Let us talk a bit about Vice concrete ideas that you put forward in your book. So we discuss that her way of thinking reflected her personal experience and it still has a universal appeal. Her concept of uprootedness, for example, is especially striking in this context because she discussed it in the face of the German invasion during the Second World War and the declining colonial rule. You make a link between the uprootedness that Vi discussed and the lack of social capital understood by Robert Patman, for example, so the decay of the civic institutions. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Because I wanted to ask her also, how did they understand uprootedness and how can we put this concept into our times? I could try to explain. It's a potentially controversial Potentially, it is a controversial subject because, as you know, in Europe, as in the United States, there are voices, a growing number of voices on the right and on the far right, insist upon this notion of the Great Replacement, the uh, Grand Replacement, that extreme right figures in France, in Hungary, as you well know, on the right in Great Britain, on the right here in the United States, represented by, among others, our former president, who appeal to this notion that Native Americans are menaced with the prospect of becoming uprooted by these great waves of, of immigrants coming from different countries and practicing different customs and rituals and, of course, speaking different different languages. That's not at all what Simone Weil meant. Uprootedness was, has been a key element in extreme right-wing thought in France ever since the late 19th century, going back as far as the Dreyfus Affair and the writings of anti-Semites like Edward Drummond or Maurice Barrez, who spoke about la terre et les morts, the earth and the dead 
said, and that's what defines Frenchness. It's a definition that a Jew could never, ever embody according to Barrez. And that this notion, this belief, has never died and is now growing once again in France. But what they means is something quite different. Uprootedness has nothing to do with, say, being pulled up from one's town, from one's region, and moved to an urban area, to a city. Uprootedness does not necessarily have anything to do with being displaced by war or catastrophe, though it certainly encompasses that. What she understands by uprootedness is this state where everything, that web of connections that are professional, that are social, that are linguistic, that once kept a community together, begin to fray and fall apart. This is a consequence of industrialization, of the rationalization of labor. It's a consequence, she argues also, of new forms of communication. She disliked radio for that very reason. She disliked these new mass magazines that I've already mentioned. And of course, this is why she would have absolutely no truck with for example, social platforms and the internet. The decay of these civic institutions, and this is something that Robert Putman, the American sociologist, has so persuasively argued, in turn lead to the decay of civic values. This is something that she addresses in Enracinement, The Need for Roots, which is the American translation of of this book. And I might mention that this was yet another work that she wrote, Kasha, while she was working for the Free French as an analyst. This was meant to be more or less a policy paper for what France needed to think about, what the leaders of France needed to think about following the liberation of the country. She worried about the impact, not just of the war, but of society in commerce, in industry, in communications that preceded the war. How can we go about re addressing this and repairing this? And that's what she undertakes in The Need for Roots. I can tell you that this uh, uprootedness could be visible contemporary in the problems of loneliness and widespread depression, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Coming back to her personal experiences, they talked about affliction from a philosophical perspective when she was working at the French factory in the early 30s. She experienced their dire conditions and mm -hmm. this place was, as you write, a site of slavery. Can you say a bit more about how she envisioned human work and human condition in this factory? As you know, after a few years of teaching at various lycées in France, uh, Simone Weil decided that she wasn't accomplishing a great deal as a teacher and that in a way it was keeping her away from life or the way that so many others live their lives. She took a leave of absence from the Ministry of National Education in France and she went to work at a series of factories in the Paris region, three different factories. What she discovered there was, in her words, a new form of human slavery. The word that she uses in order to describe the emotional, the material, and the psychological consequences of this new form of safe slavery is le malheur, which literally means unhappiness. But the way in which some 
English translators um, parse the word. It's affliction. And this gets closer to what Simone Weil understood by malheur. That it's a condition, not just material want. It's not just a condition of economic desperation. It goes beyond this. It has a spiritual aspect for Simone Weil. And I need to say that uh, this is before she begins to move towards Catholicism. But it, nevertheless, at least for a Platonist, which she was from beginning to end, it has a spiritual aspect. And what she understood is that working in the factory, working on an assembly line, working a machine, so much more powerful than she herself was, working under the constraints of the time clock under the need to meet a certain quota every day at that factory. What Malet is, is the obliteration of the person herself. That Malet or affliction means the transformation of a human being into a thing. And that can occur, for example, on the battlefield, which is the very thing she describes in her essay on, on the Iliad. But that can also occur in a factory. That can occur not just in a factory in her time during the interwar period, but it can occur in their equivalent in our time. I can't help but think, for example, of people working in Amazon warehouses who I think have more than an inkling of what Simone Weil was talking about in respect to her experience on the assembly lines in the factories around Paris, that she discovers at the end of the day, and she writes about this in her factory journal, that she was no longer capable of thought while she was there. And then managing to think about that experience after she leaves the factory, she realizes that it's probably a good thing that she's no longer capable of thought. Because if she could, in fact, think while being subjected to the inhuman rhythm and demands of this assembly line, well, the consequences would be fatal. That in order to survive, she couldn't think. And so that is at least in part what she understands by affliction. But affliction arrives in so many guises, in so many ways. It's certainly not limited to a factory floor or to a battlefield. Absolutely. I can imagine that uh, affliction can happen also in a modern corporation. So every place where the force can exert pressure on the employees and the leaders. Oh, absolutely. Since we are talking in a journal covering topics related to democracy, I cannot avoid a question about Vey's concept of democracy and citizenship, or collectivity and obligations. We write that democracy for Vey was not good in, of, and by itself. My question is, why did she criticize this type of political form? And how did she conceive citizenship and civil duties? As you know, Kasha, from the book, Simone Weil has little patience with what today we call rights talk. And this is an insight that is not unique to Simone Weil. This is something that we find with Hannah Arendt in her The Origins of Totalitarianism. Rights were not all they were cracked up to be, something we discovered during the 1930s and the fate of, of first German Jews and then European Jews, that the rights they thought were inalienable, inalienable um, eternal and universal, in fact, were more or less rooted in a single nation state. And when they were ruled um, not worthy of either 
citizenship or life within that nation state, this notion of rights didn't do very much in order to protect them. They was bothered by rights talk. It smacked of transactional exchanges, of commercial exchanges. And it made us lose sight of what she thought was far more important, namely needs and obligations. And this is something that she discusses in the need for roots. Um, in fact, this is, in a way, the prologue to the need for roots. Namely, she gives a list of needs that all human beings have. They're material, but they're also, in a way, um, psychological and intellectual needs. What needs in turn entail are obligations that first and foremost, each and every one of us, um, Ave argues, has an obligation to the other to make sure that their needs are met. Because if their needs are not realized, their rights are merely formal. If their rights are to have any true consequence, we are obliged to first fulfill the needs of the other to meet those needs. And this would be the case for any healthy democracy. She had very little patience with the forms of, of 20th century democracy. For example, as uh, perhaps you know, she wrote a policy paper, perhaps one that Charles de Gaulle actually did like, which called for the abolition of political parties. She thought political parties actually get in the way of a healthy functioning of a democracy, because the moment one joins a political party, represents a political party, you no longer speak, much less think as a human being with one's own agency, you speak and think in the logic of that party rather than representative democracy. She was far more sympathetic. And this was also the case with Albert Camus, for that matter. She was far more sympathetic to the anarcho-syndicalists in France, that she thought anarcho-syndicalism was a far more human and a far more effective way of guaranteeing true democratic processes than the various forms of representative democracy that existed in the West in the 1930s or I imagine she would say exist in the West in uh, the 21st century. Thank you for that. I think that many European intellectuals in the field of European law, for example, called for this uh, more talk about the obligations rather, rather than rights. It is a fascinating discourse right now. My last question would regard the topic of Vey's religious beliefs. Though she was born to a Jewish secular family, she became intellectually inspired by Catholicism by the end of her life. So could you explain what did Catholicism mean to Vey? During the last few years of her life, as you just noted, Vey's thoughts turned increasingly towards towards religion. And she begins a series of conversations with theologians, amateur theologians, for example, Gustave Thibon, with whom she, she worked on his farm in southern France for several months in, in the early years of the occupation, before she left France with her parents, or with Catholic priests. This was the case with Joseph-Marie Perrin, a Dominican priest in Marseille, with whom she had several conversations, in which she thought about conversion, but decided that this was a bridge too far, that for specific reasons she could not convert 
she could not convert to Catholicism. The way I understand her understanding of Catholicism was that it provided a framework that was more immediate and more personal than the previous framework, philosophical framework, framework in which she worked, Kasha, namely Platonism. She was deeply indebted to Plato, thought so much more highly of Plato than she did, for example, of Aristotle. You see evidence of her Platonism in her early works, her political works, for example, but yet she has a series of, in the, in, 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 in the waning years of the 1930s, three different experiences. Each of them, they are with growing and intensity. And as she writes, in a matter-of-fact fashion, that she realized that Catholicism was the the religion of slaves. And she saw herself as belonging to to that population of slaves. It's not so much that According to Vey, she embraces Catholicism, but that Catholicism, through these epiphanies she had, embraced her. But she had an extraordinarily severe understanding of Catholicism, or at least more specifically of her relationship with God. She writes increasingly about what she calls décréation, decreation, in which a Christian's true task according to Simone Weil, is to unmake oneself in order to make the space for God to reoccupy. In other words, she understands creation by God as God's folding in upon himself, thus making space or room in the creation for humankind, and that it is the task of those of those creatures, those creations of God, to return their love to God by unmaking themselves in order to allow God to once again assume that space that he had sacrificed, that he had given up. And so her understanding of Catholicism or of her relationship to God in some ways is far more akin to, for example, medieval Catharism, which was judged a heresy by the Catholic Church, than it is to traditional Catholicism. But surely this was something that was at play in Simone Weil's mind during the last months of her life when she, in effect, starved herself to death in England. Is something that biographers and the readers of they continue to debate whether or not this was suicide or whether or not this was simply a sacrifice that she made not just on behalf of her God, but also on behalf of her fellow French um, in occupied France who could only eat thanks to ration cards, so many calories a day. It could be interpreted as her as a sign of her integrity. Exactly. But others have interpreted it as a sign of her insanity. This was this was the conclusion of the English coroner um, in England in 1943, following her death. I think this opens up many possibilities for our listeners, and I hope that this conversation will invite them to explore base ideas on their own. Thank you very much, Professor Zaretsky, for this conversation. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Kasha. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you, and I'll come to you next time.